0: Welcome to episode number 599 of the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Juan de Pereja at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. With Vanessa K. Valdez, my guest David Pullins is the co curator of Juan de Pereja, Afro Hispanic painter in the age of Velazquez. The exhibition is the first examination of the life and oeuvre of Pereja, who was enslaved in Velazquez's studio before developing his own independent practice. The Met's exhibition features works by Velázquez and Pereja, of course, as well as examinations of how Spanish painters presented Black and Morisco populations. It's on view through July 16th. A superb exhibition catalog—I had a blast reading this one—was published by The Met. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $46. On the second segment, artists and their day jobs. But first, David Pullins, after the break. On view through July 9, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artists' early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artists' work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South LA, Downtown LA, and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents... Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s through her groundbreaking black and white optical works of the early 1960s to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. When interdisciplinary artist Will Rawls thinks about acts of resistance and why he makes dance, quote, it's to insist on complexity and not simplicity. His latest work, Sicker, does just that. Running from April 27th through 30th at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Sicker pushes back against the terms through which blackness and queerness are seen on film through dance, photography, and sound. Plan your visit to see Sicker and learn more about the onstage suite at mcachicago.org backslash frictions. And we're back. David Pullins, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I think the necessary preamble for understanding this project, and of course the project is the exhibition, an A-plus catalog, and of course, in a way, Juan de Perea's own work, kind of a necessary preamble is some knowledge of 17th century artistic practice in Spain. Was it common for artists and artisans to enslave men, women, and children for their labor? And how might an artist such as Velázquez have used enslaved people?
1: Right. Well, I think that for many people, including at certain stages for me in the early stages of research for this show comes as something of revelation to realize how widespread enslaved artisanal labor was in southern Spain. To a certain extent, I actually am left with the feeling that 17th century spanish art and visual culture more broadly and as you know in the catalog and exhibition their works of silver Sculpture and this is also true of other printing workshops, etc Engaged enslaved labor basically for anyone who was sort of mildly successful as an artisan This was common practice so the breadth of that that is then encapsulated in one particular story about Wanda Pareja in part because of his association with Velasquez, we know perhaps the most about him relative to anyone else, is kind of overwhelming to to start to realize that as sort of undergirding a a kind of a body of work that is in many ways very familiar, but this really kind of defamiliarizes it in, in a way. And so quite common, and this is a context in which usually it's you know workshops will have maybe one or two enslaved people there and then often additional enslaved people in the household raising the children cooking cleaning more domestic tasks because of course workshop and household were relatively blurry boundaries for a lot of these a lot of these uh, families
0: what might have enslaved laborers have done within a painter's workshop
2: yeah,
1: so I think, you know, the traditional understanding of of Juan de Pareja in, in Velazquez's workshop was he was grinding colors, he's priming canvases, maybe stretching those canvases. And we can assume that all that those things are probably true. That's also an interesting way to think about his actual physical role in producing a large amount of Velazquez's production. I mean, it's not what you see visibly on the surface, but that also is a really defamiliarizing kind of sense. The question of whether to what degree Wanda Preja is actively painting the kind of surface that you actually see in the end is one that we're still sort of figuring out there's a, there's a single a work in the exhibition a, a portrait of Philip IV that's based on a Velasquez head of Philip IV which of course was the typical thing in a workshop you have the head as the prime thing and then different assistants depending on how prestigious the commission handed that to copy and there's a work that I propose probably was copied by Wanda Pareja while they were in Rome together in 1650. The question would just be essentially, you know, to what degree Pareja was entrusted with actively painting sort of workshop production. And that's something we're sort of, as I say, figuring out. It's a bit of a blurry boundary, in part because one of the real frustrations and revelations about working through the literature on Velazquez, as we know, he has this large studio, particularly for making replicas of important sitters, which would get commissioned for political reasons, etc. The typical kind of connoisseurship on this has largely been it's either Velazquez or not. And if it's not, they just all sort of swim around in this kind of sea of loose attributions. As that's firmed up, it's quite likely that Juan de Pereja's personality might might actually start to link up with a group of those works.
0: Well, speaking of, of Velazquez, we, we know Diego Velasquez. But what do we know of Wanda Pereja, his his origins and kind of his emergence into a painter in his own right?
1: Yeah. also so the, the way that it's reflected in sort of the nature of increasing focus on him over the course of the exhibition is in part because we know he's born around 1608 in the city of Anticata, which is not so far from Seville. So it's part of this Andalusian culture in which a mixed race population and slave labor is quite widespread they share a kind of common cultural sense, which is also distinguished very clearly that he's born in Spain. That's often a misconception that, that, that he's not. Uh, and is a native Spanish speaker, for example, sometimes people ask what language he spoke, which is telling in many ways of people's sense of him as other. But in fact, he would have seen himself as certainly Spanish. And in that sense, part of the title for the show too is in that. But in terms of the first 25 years of his life or so, we don't know much because basically he's born around 1608. We did, uh, we found wonderful researchers who worked through the archives in Antiquetta to look for a baptism record. Unfortunately, the name Wanda Preha, which was also the artist's father's name, is relatively common, maddeningly. So there were a few candidates, but but no no clear hit. So the next record that really we that we certainly know where Wanda Pereja is, is in 1634. So between 1608 and 1634, he's presumably in southern Spain, but by 1634, he is, that's the first document linking him to Velasquez and by that point Velázquez had moved to Madrid in 1623 So they could have been in Madrid for some time together at that point And then from there on out in part because of his proximity to this major figure An uh, artistic production who's around the court and therefore, you know documented to greater or lesser degree you know, then he sort of he consistently pops up in things like the uh, marriage contracts for Velasquez's daughter. He's in the room as a witness to that, this kind of thing. So you can kind of follow him around. And then I guess the the kind of most important document for us and, and pivotal obviously in the overall narrative for Wanda Pereja is the manumission document which is signed in 1650 in Rome, whereby in four years, uh, kind of a probationary period, which is actually a standard four-year period often for these manumission documents, he would be freed. And after that, he does go on to certainly have his own career as a painter. I I mentioned that maybe the earliest works are things like copies in the workshop, which would be a standard kind of assistant uh, apprenticeship system. But what's really striking by the time he sets out on his own is he absolutely paints in a very different style than Velázquez, instead in this very, what would have then been really contemporary cutting-edge painting in 1660s Madrid, which looks very different. It's a very exuberant Spanish Baroque, heavily informed by Venetian painting, this kind of chalky palette. And so for the last certainly 12, probably 15 years of his life, certainly the decade of the 1660s, he's producing a large number of quite impressive and sizable canvases. And interestingly, at that point, we almost have a flip in information. So while he's with Velazquez for about 20 years, he'll appear in legal documents, as presence, you have some sense of what he's doing. But at the end of his life thus far, and I think we could easily find more things thus far, that documentation is sort of a writing in paint. So essentially it's it's a body of painted work from which we can extrapolate a certain
0: amount of information. Well, we're going to build to a lot of that. And I guess I want to kind of dial in on that 1649 trip that Velasquez and Pereja take to Rome. They go for two years. Their brief is to basically acquire things for the king, although they do lots of other stuff too. Um, <laughs> exactly. By that point, Pereja had had uh, been enslaved by, or uh, maybe if he'd been with Velasquez before he'd been enslaved. However, you know, there, there are things, as I understand it, we don't know. But he'd he been in Velasquez's circle in one form or another for about 15 years. Would it have been normal for a painter such as Velasquez to have taken an enslaved man, even one enslaved within his studio, on a trip such as one to Rome for a period such as two years?
1: It's a great question. I
0: think probably not.
1: Uh, and I think it's it's a striking situation. One, you know, one that has led people to much in the way that when people speak about the Met's portrait of Pareja by Velazquez, they see, they read into it a certain amount of friendship, intimacy to that, which it's there on some level, this kind of unbelievably close knowledge of each other. But it is certainly the case that, you know, when <laughs> Velazquez travels, the choice to come with Pareja certainly says something. He's his traveling companion, as you say, for around two years. And in that sense, it's an interesting thing on a f- on a few fronts. One is, you know, I've tried to understand as best I could, what that looked like, even sort of literally visually, when Velazquez enters the room with this man, uh, who is a person of color, who is his property, his legal property, what that signals. And in, in Madrid, in the court in Madrid, it was relatively clear what it signaled. There are many enslaved people in the court in Madrid, and they're essentially signs of hierarchy and esteem and success and in that world it meant one thing in italy slavery was perfectly legal but far less common and you know it's it's hard for us to to reimagine a moment when velazquez wasn't extremely famous but in fact in rome Uh, there are any number of documents indicate people saying who is this pretentious guy who is showing up on behalf of the king you know they see the spaniards as a little bit backwater at certain moments so there's a kind of language about him being kind of pompous and it must have added to that that he came with this enslaved servant and part of it, I've wondered whether it actually didn't look a little old-fashioned and a little bit rustic to be in this situation. But you know, they they're traveling around, and I and I will say that you know the one document that does stand out here also is kind of interesting. in, in what was their relationship? It's actually after it's on their way back. So you know, they kind of travel around Rome and the, or in around Italy, but the most of the time is in Rome. After he signed the manumission papers, so. Pareja is not yet free, but he's about to be in the next couple few years. There's a document to writing ahead to another court where, where Velazquez and Pareja will be staying. And it says he will be traveling. It's a warning them. That they're coming, make sure that you have space for them to stay. They say, and he's traveling with his, with his servant who he esteems very highly. And I, and I can only take that to mean that, you know, I certainly don't want read too much sympathy necessarily into Velázquez's view of Pareja, but I would say that it suggests that, you know, this isn't someone you're going to expect to be sleeping in the stable. This is someone who's going to expect to be treated in a certain way, or more precisely, Velázquez would expect him to be treated in a certain, with a certain dignity. And that's, that's striking. It's, it's these very small hints that you can get about perception versus a much more dry archival uh, kind of record.
0: A couple of questions I know we might not know the answer to. Why did Velázquez take Pareo with him in the first place?
1: I think you know it's it's he doesn't travel with any other kind of entourage. It's interesting to imagine that if Velázquez planned to be painting, he was accustomed to operating with a large workshop in Madrid. So, at the most basic level of labor, uh, and he does seem to set up at least a kind of temporary workshop. He certainly produces a, an important group of paintings in Rome. Perhaps he anticipated that presumably. Pareja was very familiar with the specific kind of way that Velazquez would have wanted his colors to be mixed, canvases to be primed, all the things that would be key. And in a different city, he couldn't just kind of rely on teaching someone anew. So that kind of knowledge, and that's something we see in a lot of the sales contracts, actually, between artisanal contexts of, say, enslaved people in silver shops, that there are certain kinds of artisanal knowledge that they have that's valued. So that's one thing. And the other may have been a self-presentation issue, and that's something I've thought a lot about in relationship to the Met's painting, in relationship even to the choice to free Juan de Parejo while he's in Rome, is this sense of a public perception. I mean, clearly Velazquez is highly aware of self-presentation in this sort of key artistic site.
0: The raison d'etre for the exhibition is, of course, the famed portrait of I you just mentioned that's in the Met's collection. It was made in Rome sometime between mid-1649, the summer of 1649, and early 1650, say March-ish of 1650. Do we know if Velasquez painted it before or after he signed those manumission papers?
1: He painted it before, and that's an interesting kind of sequence in a sense. He paints it before, and in many ways, I increasingly understand that painting to be a sort of calling card for his presence in Rome. It's a real kind of, it's a flashy painting and in part through the paradox of representing someone low on the social kind of hierarchy and yet painted with this kind of incredible kind of bravura. And the unlikeliness of that as his subject was surely part of the kind of success of
0: Velasquez exhibited the painting of Juan de Pereja in Rome in the spring of 1650. Do we know anything about how that went?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's actually, you know, for a 17th century painting like this, particularly once painted outside the context of, of Madrid, we actually seem to know if we're going to believe Palomino, who's, you know, the sort of Vasari of Spanish painters, he's publishing in the 1720s, but, you know, he has a lot of solid information and he writes biographies of both Velazquez and Juan de Pereja, which is really remarkable, the fact that Juan de Pereja receives his own biography, and that becomes the kind of cornerstone for thinking about him for centuries, actually. So how, would it, how it went, I think, you know, in terms of, I guess, as I was about to say, in as much as it's pretty unusual to have much reception history for things that early on. It's before, you know, typically things were shown publicly uh, in exhibitions. But in fact, at the Pantheon in Rome in 1650, there's a sort of one-day exhibition. Many people would exhibit, people like Salvatore Rosa and others would exhibit there. And according to Palomino, not only is it exhibited to great success and artists, the kind of artistic uh, circles in Rome receive it extremely well. And they say, okay, well, now we have to take this Spanish painter seriously. In theory, that paves the way for the famous Innocent the Tenth portrait by Velazquez, but the quite wonderful. And and it's interesting because it's hard to kind of, you want very much to believe it. It's also a question of, is it this wonderful kind of historiographic thing that's just sort of stuck around for so long? Velazquez, the painter of truth kind of thing of, supposedly, according to Palomino, Velasquez had Wanda Pareja carried his own portrait around Rome so that different artists and critics could compare the living man to the portrait and determine which was more true. And some, you know, some couldn't determine or they thought the painting was more real than the man. It's an amazing conceit, uh, whether it's true or not, but it certainly sets up the terms by which people understood Velasquez as a portraitist. But also, I guess the other thing that I'm struck by in that story is the sense that from that moment forward, the fame of the Mets painting from the time it was painted, literally from, you know, when the paint's drying and it's there on exhibition, Wanda Preja as a person, as a lived body and his image by Velasquez had suddenly kind of started to merge. And presumably Wanda Preja as a person had a certain recognizability that had to do with that kind of iconicity of the portrait. And that's kind of a fascinating thing.
0: Well, let's talk about Pereja's work and let's start with paintings that are firmly attributed to him. There are five of those in your exhibition and at least at the time the catalog went to press, there were 14 that were known. The first picture in the show is one you mentioned a moment ago, a portrait of Philip IV from uh, right about 1650. What does that painting tell us about Perea and Velazquez, and does it suggest anything about where Pereja will go as an artist after Velazquez?
1: Well, so that's a painting which is in the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, and we have the receipt for it. Maddeningly, the receipt does not say who painted it. However, it's cheap enough that certainly, well, we can tell that when we look at it, that it's not by Velazquez. And so the proposition really is that who in 1650 would have had access to the head of Philip IV that would have been the kind of prime thing which it would be copied. It's the same head that was used by the, for the Frick's portrait by Velazquez of Philip IV. You know, to, to suggest that in that moment, Pereja's role in the workshop would have been in many ways, if he's painting works that circulate, it's it's much in, more in the sense of, as with many apprentices, they're handed, you know, uh, the commission from Santa Maria Maggiore, the funny thing is, it's pretty clear that they, they really just need effigies. They aren't really interested in who's painting them. So they're not willing to pay very much. And so you can imagine a situation where Velasquez says, well, you know, he can do this. So that's kind of early days. And there's a work also in, in Columbia, South Carolina, actually, also Philip IV that relates and is probably by Wanda Preja as well. So that would show this kind of copyist mode, which is, you know, would be as expected for most people working in a major painter's workshop. What's really striking, I think, is, and we try to make that point in the exhibition, and also particularly as you move out of one gallery and into another. There was a long misperception in the literature that Wanda Pereja tried to paint in the manner of Velasquez. He doesn't figure it out. He he fails at that. It's pretty obvious that from the first signed and dated painting, 1658, four years after he's been freed, um, that's a painting in the Ringling Museum in Sarasota, Florida, he's definitely not interested in continuing what he's been looking at. With Velasquez, this is this Madrid School painting I mentioned before of you know very different kind of palette. This Venetian kind of high-keyed, chalky palette.
0: Yeah, let me set that up for just a second. So you mentioned it's Pareja's first known dated and signed canvas. It's from 1658, and its colors are Venetian. Its handling of figures are is, is kind of generously rounded, a la you know kind of Tintoretto, Veronese is something we'll see in Pareja later later on given that he didn't get any of this from Velázquez where does it come from <laughs>
1: <laughs> well it's, it's it's interesting on one hand he's clearly absorbing very quickly a world around him of painters who are much less familiar to an American audience now but are part of painters in the capital you know by the time Velázquez dies in 1660 his his style is you know, hugely respected and and this kind of piece, this legend, of course, by the time he dies, but it's very courtly and essentially slightly old-fashioned. He's seeing that in the world around him there. But what's really interesting is that among those painters and there are a couple works in the show by them, one by Coelho, another key figure probably for him is Jose Antolines, uh, who I propose is a figure he includes in The Calling of St. Matthew. What's interesting is he's actually seen a far greater range of works by Venetian masters, not to mention everyone else, than any of those people painting in Madrid. The kind of perverse reality of him having been enslaved by Velazquez is years of access to not only the royal collections in Madrid, which were none too shabby, but having spent those Little over two years in Italy, at which point he's going around between Venice, Urbino, all of these places. And in that sense, he's actually seen a tremendous amount, far more than most 17th century Spanish painters. So he's able to pull on that broader visual kind of vocabulary and sort of visual library.
0: Which I guess was popular in Spain. I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, Italy got over well, lots of places, but. I guess that difference from Velázquez and the the king of the court painters ended up being a plus. Yes, I think
1: you know in many ways it was appealing to what was then sort of contemporary taste. I mean essentially by the end of his life Velázquez's style is very much associated with the court and portraiture in particular actually. But, you know, but Pareja's work it at, over the course of the 1660s is essentially religious subjects. He's much more kind of uh, dense, uh, complex compositions that were typical of of these Madrid
0: school painters. Oh, let's talk about one of those, and that is the 1661 Calling of St. Matthew at the Prado, which m- p- might be, probably is the most significant pareja in the exhibition, and it's certainly, at least to my eye, the one most referenced throughout the catalog. Of course, maybe that's because it's the Prado and that happens, but presumably there's some other reasons too. Um, it's a nearly 11-foot-wide painting, kind of the very definition of a self-conscious major painting right down to the inclusion of the painter within the painting. So how might we understand this picture? Is it a picture of St. Matthew being called from tax collecting into um, the circle of Jesus, which is, of course, a very familiar trope in Catholic painting? Or has Perea built it into something more?
1: Well, this is one of the great mysteries of this painting is the degree to which he's commenting on his own role and even sort of assimilation into or finding a place within the establishment of Madrid, probably, I guess you would call it kind of artisanal society. It's this question of also how he presents himself. So this is a painting in which on the far left, there is a self-portrait that in many ways recalls the portrait by Velazquez that Curiously, he hadn't seen in 11 years because it stayed in Italy. has that recollection of it. But inserting himself into this highly religious subject is one that has been seen. Of course, this is something that is not uncommon in in 17th century Spanish painting. There's a Murillo in the exhibition as well that's essentially a disguised wedding portrait, but it's also the marriage feast at Cana. But both here and in the way he signs a later work, on a rock that crushes a serpent, he's you know inserting himself into into the mainstream in some sense, but also into a, a strongly Catholic context. And certainly, that's also taking place in a society in which, and this is something we try to pull through in some of the an early section that deals with the range of kind of cultural racial backgrounds in Spain, of the suspicion, longstanding suspicion in Spain of rooting out Muslim populations, of course, a territory that had been ruled by Muslim rulers for centuries prior. So he really clearly declaring his his place as, in some ways, a normative statement, I would say. That seems as though it's a modest one, but in fact sort of establishing himself among a group of painters who were in the, in the mainstream.
0: Within Calling of St. Matthew, the figures are dressed in an extraordinary range of ways. One's tempted to say in in, in, in a in an a historical range of ways, how are they dressed, and should we understand anything from that?
1: Yes, there is this whole range of clothing, also of furniture. It's interesting. The very typical Spanish form desk in the back. So this really free range of. It's not a historic. It's not intended to be historically accurate. It's freely combining contemporary material culture with presumably uh, religious, what was thought to be biblical. So Pareja and the man next to him, who I suspect is Jose who who is his contemporary, another painter in that moment, who actually a year later will paint a work based on this composition, kind of almost as if uh, kind of returning the favor. You know, they're dressed essentially in, in contemporary fashion. But then, of course, the religious subjects are in somewhat fanciful, but essentially meant to be sort of biblical, classical robes. And by far, I think maybe one of the most striking and mysterious elements of the painting is a page in the background, a servant. You can clearly tell that by this large ruff that he's wearing that has this very ornamental aspect to him. And this is someone who's represented as the darkest skin color in the room, more so than Pareja himself. And that sort of sets up this interesting Question of hierarchy and gradation of status within this work that is simultaneously looking at contemporary society and and sort of scriptural source, sources.
0: Is this the figure behind the column?
1: Yes, he's, he's, he's sort of departing behind a column, and rather uh, the the most the thing that usually strikes people the most, and and it is indeed uh, really curious. Pareja uh, employs these. Really slightly atypical. Curiously, one of the only people who really uses them a lot is El Greco. Are these sort of almost three D halos? Yes. They're almost like little, little kind of UFOs. They're yes. little star shaped things, but you understand they're sort of meant to be three D. And one of those appears kind of right over the face of this child, and it actually ends up drawing attention attention to that child. And it's hard, you know to not not to believe that in a society that's thinking a lot about gradations of mixing skin color and race the the easiest way to put it in a sense is perejo could have just chosen not to include the child at all and omit the question but by inserting him he really invests a certain puts a certain pressure on where he himself might fall relative to the rest of the figures
0: the wild thing about that to someone like me who is a lay fan of spanish art Is that the closest thing there is to a traditional, albeit antique, halo in the rest of the painting, is the gold dish behind Perea's own head?
1: Absolutely, and it's such a deliberate choice. It's actually such a brilliant idea to just incidentally be standing in such a way that a large gold dish that's actually much louder and more declarative than sort of 3D halos indeed is is behind his head and. focuses your eye. Not only does it suggest this kind of religious aspect, but it really focuses your own eye on looking to him. And it's part of how you recognize he's, of course, the one person looking out. He's holding a piece of paper that has his name, and the date of the painting on it, but it really uh, you know, sets him apart.
0: The other most major pareja here is one of almost the exact same dimensions of the calling of St. Matthew. It's a 1667 baptism of Christ It has much of the warmth of color and roundness of form, familiar from the decade earlier Flight of Egypt that Perea painted, but this painting is enormously more complicated. I mean, there's a lot more narrative and reference within the picture. I can't decide if I think it's a really conservative painting or a really ambitious painting or if maybe it's both. How might, yeah, where do we, where, what do we think of that?
1: <laughs> right. I think this is, a, this is a sort of the sort of painting you have to see it to believe it. In a way, the calling of St. Matthew, you can more easily imagine the calling of St. Matthew with the artist self portrait stuck on one end. However, this baptism of, of Christ, which similarly, as you said, a similar scale, about 11 feet wide. And this is one of the reasons, too, when there's very little sense of reception history or even who's commissioning these works. These are things we still haven't really figured out. We have kind of leads and suggestions of this. But when people say, how do you know he was successful? How do you know that, you know, there was a market? In both of these cases, you don't paint things at this scale on speculation or for fun. You do it because you have someone who wants this kind of image. And the the baptism of Christ is really one in which I, I usually point out in the gallery that yeah, there's one little bit of sky that maybe he chose not to really use. The rest of it, every inch is doing <laughs> something, be it the representation of the transparency of the water, these multiple three different degrees of finish, foreground, middle ground and background, the landscape, God, the father descending, the sort of clear display of look I can really handle foreshortening with the with the uh, angels wings and the different textures of the wings. I mean sort of every aspect is 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 doing something. In a way, actually, to be honest, it has come away actually from the moment I saw it. At the, that point it was it's owned by the Prado, but it was on deposit in Huesca, which is in northwest or northeast Spain. It, it's 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 actually incredibly to me it became my my favorite in a sense. It was really the one that just thought, wow, he's just having a lot of fun showing everything that he can that he can do. And in terms of whether it's conservative or how it fits in, I think one of the things I love about it too is that in many ways it's one of the most idiosyncratic paintings. It really shows a particular artistic personality that's not simply assimilating things and just sort of sticking close to what else is happening around him, but someone who's willing to step out out of that and and paint something that's a little bit wild and unexpected.
0: It's totally wild. It's totally unexpected. And yet there are some things from, say, Italian art history that are readily recognizable, like the rocks on the far right, probably extra recognizable to you, given that you used to work at the Frick, and, and a very Spanish lamb, albeit one that's alive, in the lower right. Was Perea doing here or in other paintings a mindful, perhaps marketable, perhaps highly marketable blending of Italian and Spanish?
1: I think certainly. I think he, he he would have hoped that people would would catch some of these references. What's interesting is that in both the compositions for the Calling of Saint Matthew and the Baptism, in particular for the Baptism, I've always found those two angels. Actually, there are three, but two of the largest ones. I kept thinking, surely I will find the source. Surely this source. Surely he's looking at some other painter, and it may be my fault. I simply didn't find it, and that's not to say. If you were to find such a source, it's not to say, oh, he wasn't creative, etc. This is simply the way 17th century painters work is through citation and reworking earlier painters. And in fact, I didn't. And, you know, as this goes out into the world, maybe someone will easily open my email and someone's found the print that I didn't see. But essentially, he is really doing something that he's not particularly reliant on any one thing in these cases. And that's that's pretty striking because for many people in this period, if you're going to do a relatively standard subject, you look at a range of sources and you kind of pick and choose, but ultimately it's going to come from a certain kind of lineage.
0: Let's talk about portraiture for a moment. There is a portrait of Jose Rates from about 1664 in the show. Should we think anything of Pareja receiving portrait commissions, either because he was known at the court or because he was formerly enslaved and that mattered or did not? What should we think of or what might we think of the opportunity he had to be a portraitist?
1: Well, it's interesting, a lot of the early sources, written sources on Wanda Preha, Preja, insist that he's primarily a portraitist. And it's odd because in terms of the works that survive, or at least that have been attributed, and that was clearly part of the task of trying to pull this together, both for the catalog and the exhibition, it's actually not portraits really that come to the top in numbers or in quality or ambition, but rather these religious subjects. So this is a work that uh, we do feel confident based on that similarity to the calling of St. Matthew figures. Rates is interesting and was important to include in, in the exhibition because he's one of the few instances in which we have a way to locate Wanda Pereja working in Madrid on a chapel that essentially Rates is an architect, but essentially sort of a head of works, you know, he's coordinating a bunch of artisans. And among those is Wanda preja And so there for a period of a couple of years, there are regular sort of monthly payments to Wanda Pareja that pass through Rates. So we know that they have this kind of relationship relatively early on in Pareja's admittedly quite belated career. So that's in the early 1660s. One of the questions that I've Ask myself that I I am asked by people, and I simply don't have a solid answer. Is to speculate on to what degree was it meaningful to someone who commissioned a work from him? Is it is there a sense of act of charity involved in approaching someone who's formerly enslaved? Is there this kind of rub off effect of celebrity that also in, involves Velázquez, even though he paints in a different manner? It, it's a probably impossible. To know and in, in early early sources he's almost consistently referred to even when he's given by his name as then the slave of velasquez so he kind of wears velasquez constantly i actually in the end and it's not just an optimistic sense of him sort of you know trying to claim his own authority um and autonomy at the end of his life but the works of art themselves really suggest both stylistically the kind of sense of agency in the way he's signing the signing practices are so interesting and sort of declarative that presumably he was not looking to lean on that very heavily. Presumably he's pulled into it constantly, those associations, but he seems to really try to chart his own much more autonomous identity.
0: There are similar questions in the United States with Joshua Johnson and his relationship to the Peel family. You mentioned the question of Pareja and connoisseurship earlier. You include here a group of paintings that are possible attributions to Pareja. Is there one or two that might serve as a good example of how we, and by we, (laughs) I mean you, (laughs) uh, might be learning how to identify a a, a Pareja?
1: Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that became important early on, I realized, was something that simply hadn't been done was charting out the most kind of what for others would have, my co-curator Vanessa Valdez, one of The things that she said to me that just really never left my mind was essentially one of the most radical things you can do for this man as an artist is to treat him as you would with any other you know old dead white guy can you just line them up you know and and what would it mean to really build out a corpus treat you know stylistic development etc and so that's one of the efforts of the catalog there it was also the the realization that frankly for the first time he was being treated by an institution that had the kind of backing to go around and photograph everything in color and reproduce it for the first time. That felt like a real contribution that we we could try to make. So it's organized in such a way that you have the most firmly attributed things, followed by those that I, I think we just have to admit that we're not quite sure where where it lands. And that's in part because they're the things that are the easiest to, to attribute. They're the things that look a lot like the calling of St. Matthew. And then inevitably, the things that would probably fall earliest in his career or latest in his career are more difficult. One work in particular is, you know, a full length portrait that's in uh, Stuttgart, which I now regret is not in the fully attributed works, because I increasingly, the more I look, the more I realize it certainly is certainly by him. It's always the things that are sort of either stylistically slightly off, but there's no reason someone can't develop over time. Uh, And he's painting, you know, he's developing very quickly in this kind of condensed career. And then the other thing in there is a number of works both fully attributed and not, are in not the best condition. And thankfully, uh, colleagues in Valencia, who lent us one work, and colleagues at the Prado for the baptism of Christ, did conservation work to get these paintings in in the best shape that we, that we could for the public, and also to make them safe to travel, to consolidate paint, and this kind of thing. And that's also just a story of the lack of attention granted him. These are things that have either, perhaps they've been in storage in a couple of instances, big things that were rolled up et cetera. And that can make attribution difficult when the when the condition is just so poor that it's hard to even really see what's happening.
0: Let's wrap up by going back to the Velasquez of Pareja that's in the Met's collection. The picture's provenance goes back to the 1730s. It has an extensive auction history going back to 1801, although for a chunk of that time it was buried in um, a castle, as is so often the case. Point being, the picture has been known for centuries, when did scholars begin to study to study it and to argue for it? And what might we take forward from looking back at that, that period and process?
1: Sure. I think in many ways, I would like to think of the presence of the Met painting, which came to the Met in 1971, as a, a kind of object lesson in opening up new questions and stories that are really at the as I've often said for this project, you know, people on some level see it as something that's coming from the edges, from the peripheries. And in other ways, it's the absolute most canonical site you can imagine, which is Velazquez's studio, where Pereja was for 20 years, that you think, wow, the potential for rethinking and renewal at the center of the canon is as as rich as anywhere. And so for us at the Met, that portrait by Velazquez, you know, has been a kind of icon for the Museum since it was purchased, and that was the striking thing about looking at that acquisition history, both here and then National Gallery London, where they were trying to keep it in England. It had been there for two hundred years and they were trying to keep it. And all the language around it at the time was certainly, this is a masterpiece by Velasquez also at the time, a record price that now seems laughable at five and a half million dollars. But the reality is that there's very little interest in him as a sitter. However, as we've discussed around the exhibition of the painting in 1650, from the time it's painted, both the sitter's name and the fame of the work are kind of without question. So there's this kind of odd thing. It's not one of these things of trying to figure out who he is and then understand his story. It's actually, his name was fully known and, and etc. And the fame of the portrait was, was, was very broad. I would say that for, you know, most of its life here at the Met since 1971, there has not been a particularly deep interest in who he was as an individual in a way that was all kind of sitting there waiting to be done. One of the things that you'll see in both the catalog and more probably more heavily framed actually in the exhibition is that in the research on the painting, I, this is actually uh, a tale from COVID times and Google books, you know, you, you have a lot of time in front of your computer stuck at home and, and particularly for the 19th century and early 20th century, Google books is just amazing uh, for strange periodicals and things, but one ended up being not so strange, but it, but it was absolutely missing from the Mets. We we pride ourselves on having a very solid, you know, files on our works and bibliography. And that was Arthur Schomburg, who in the 1920s, he's a Harlem Renaissance intellectual collector. He writes on Wanda Pareja, uh, publishing it in the NAACP's journal, The Crisis, an article titled In Quest of Wanda Pareja. And that's happening in 1927. And so that became really important in thinking about institutional histories here for how I conceived of this, and then brought on my co-curator, Vanessa Valdez, who's the biographer of Schomburg, to really say these questions may seem even trendy at this point for museum, of course, now's the moment to ask these questions about the sitter and interest in racial identity, etc. But that framing and that question of digging up history of a Black or African-descended diaspora. And its relevance was actually being questioned in Harlem, 50 blocks up from us here, long before the painting even arrived in New York. And that became just this kind of nagging in a very positive way question or presence was to say, these are questions that have been asked about him and his identity to the exclusion of Velazquez in a sense, like rather than focus on The painter, the portraitist to focus on the sitter. That was something that had happened here uh, in New York in the 1920s. And we weren't the first people to be asking the question, but rather doing it in a very different kind of context. Uh, And that kind of meeting of worlds and of literatures was one way that we could think about both the association of that painting with any number of populations, and even in the US that it's become kind of a, a signature kind of image, but also The way that depending on, you know, what kind of institutions are backing a particular line of questioning, uh, how much publicity and in which communities those questions land.
0: Very often what people think is trendy is really just white-led institutions finally belatedly saying yes.
1: Sums it up perfectly.
0: David Polins, thanks very much. Thank you. On view now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, Spirit in the Land, a contemporary art exhibition that examines today's urgent ecological concerns from a cultural perspective. Spirit in the Land demonstrates how intricately our identities and natural environments are intertwined. Through their artwork, 30 artists show us how rooted in the earth our most cherished cultural traditions are, how our relationship to land and water shapes us as individuals and communities. The works reflect the restorative potential of our connection to nature and exemplify how essential both biodiversity and cultural diversity are to our survival. Artists in the exhibition include Wangeshi Mutu, Radcliffe Bailey, Hugh Locke, Stacey Lynn Waddell, and Sheldon Scott, on view through July 9th. Learn more at nasher.duke.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussein Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org Islamic Worlds. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Mark de Suvero Steel Like Paper an exhibition that explores the artist's six-decades-long career and monumental vision. Plan your visit to see more than 30 sculptures presented alongside rarely seen drawings. Get tickets at NasherSculptureCenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Veronica Roberts joins me to discuss day jobs at the Blanton Museum of Art at the University of Texas. Roberts's exhibition explores how artists have taken on jobs outside their studios and how those day jobs have informed their art. Day Jobs is on view in Austin through July 23rd. Veronica Roberts, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Oh, thank you, Tyler. I'm so thrilled to be here.
0: Was there an artist or an artwork that called your attention to how the artwork that artists make might be informed by what they had to do to be artists?
2: Yes, that's a great question. And that's really how the show was inspired. It it really was inspired by a couple of specific artworks and conversations with artists. Early in my career, in my early jobs, and as curatorial assistant at the Whitney Museum, for example, I worked there were two artists that I worked with early in my career that who, who helped inspire this show. And then the, and then I kept accumulating stories and and discovering new artists as I went. But the two artists that come to mind are Barbara Kruger. I worked with her on her retrospective that was organized by LA Mocha and She is very open about her trajectory as an artist and that she did not go to art school. She actually had to leave her undergrad a little early because she had an ailing parent. And she began working very early on as a, a graphic designer for Mademoiselle and other publications. And she really talks about how that experience was learning how the sausage was made, so to speak. You know, it really informed iconic works that she made, you know, where she really knows how to capture our attention with pairing of of black and white image and red frames and red text, Uh, you know, your body is a battleground. I think about these, these iconic works that she's made that resonate and that still speak to us generations later. And I think that was so much traced to her work as a graphic designer and um, as a, you know, she also did layouts and book editing and really, so, so Barbara Kruger, I think was one of the key artists that helped me think about this show before it even was a show. But I think maybe those Barbara Kruger and Mark Bradford are two of the artists in the exhibition. They're about, they're about 38 in the show who very openly and repeatedly talk about their day job. In Mark Bradford's cases, you know, working for his mother's um, in her, her beauty shop in L.A. and doing hair. Both of them talk about it a lot and openly. But I think there are so many artists that, that maybe those stories are not well known and are not in the narrative so often. So the, there's a wonderful work in the exhibition, A Wall Drawing, Wall Drawing number 48 by Saul LeWitt. That he made for his first really important show at MoMA called "Information," that was looking at um, conceptual art of that period. And it's uh, it's such a great wall drawing because it has a long set of instructions that that are four drafters are supposed to draw four squares that are four feet in dimensions, drawing four lines and four colors, and and it even stipulates that they're going to be paid four dollars an hour. And I I saw that set of instructions and I I immediately connected it to his own job as a receptionist at the Museum of Modern Art, where he was an hourly worker. And he was there for a very long time and taught and shared with me. you know, when I worked with him early in my career, he shared with me how important that job was. And I had no idea that he had worked there. And I was completely dumbfounded and delighted to find out that, you know, that is where he met Dan Flavin, who was the elevator operator. He met Robert Ryman, who was a security guard, Robert Mangold, who had various jobs there in the library, and Lucy Lepard, who was a page in the library. And it was just like, oh my goodness, imagine what it would have been like to be at the Museum of Modern Art in the 50s and 60s, with all of these frontline staff that went on to become such significant artists. And so I really, I was initially really struck by 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 those stories that were being shared with me and then and specific works and then I initially was interested in that MoMA chapter specifically in part because I worked there and I was sort of amazed by the the group but it became something much bigger than any of those individual artists and I realized there was a way we weren't hearing these we that the that the impact of day jobs was profound for so many artists and why weren't we hearing those stories and why was it why was that not being shared more often and and that helped i think catalyze the show
0: looking at the list of works in the show that's exactly what what it got me thinking about and so maybe as a way into one or two of those stories i'd like to ask you about some specific works so i think not only are we seeing artworks that live within biographical narratives within the show which is fun and important um, I mean, I'm never one to, to look askance at biography. But we are also seeing kind of several times in the show foundational works of emergent American artist movements. So one of the works in the show is one of the foundational works of earliest American minimalism a 1959, rarely seen Larry Bell from the Museum of Contemporary Arts collection. Bell was 20 when he made it. Um, What does it reveal about what a 20-year-old Larry Bell was doing in 1959?
2: I'm so glad you asked me about that work because it's one of the smallest, most humble works in the show. But for me, it's one of the most significant. And it's paired, as you know, with a cube, uh, with a glass cube structure. He's better known for sculpture that it's nearby. But that cracked sheet of glass with a little bit of blue paper behind it is so foundational to the artist that Larry Bell has become. And what I was really I had actually not seen that work in person until putting the show together. It's Larry, but Larry shared with me because I've interviewed almost all of the, you know, the living artists who are in the exhibition. I talked with them about the show. I talked with them about the concept. and he, he shared that that broken sheet of glass that, that that the Museum of Contemporary Art owns, and that was a gift to Michael Asher, and Michael Asher, you know, gave it to, to Mocha, that was what set him off on the trajectory of pursuing glass and light and perception as uh, the, the sort of for the rest of his career. You know, he... He was, when he was 20 years old, he had just finished with, you know, art school. He was focused primarily more on painting. And he talks about how he, and what's amazing is Larry can remember this day job. He remembers, it's called, you know, he remembered the name of the frame shop he worked at, Frame Mart in Burbank. He actually remembered his boss's name. It was just incredible talking to him. You know, this is how many years later? (laughs) More than 50 years later, and he still remembers all of this. And he said that what happened was that, there was this they they had sort of small shadow boxes, sort of samples that they kept that had these this blue paper and they were made out of glass, and they were sort of samples that they had in the store. And he I think I'm trying to remember if he dropped it, or somehow this little square dropped, this little rectangle of glass dropped. And he was completely captivated and sort of mesmerized by the sheet of glass. And when you're in the show at the Blanton, you and you get up close to this work, you can see exactly what he was captivated by. The glass, the crack is a sort of beautiful, you know, what you'd expect a a crack to look like kind of a, a bit of a undulating line. It's not fully broken. And then what you see is a shadow that is there's a second line beneath it that's a shadow cast by light hitting the the glass and creating a shadow and then there's actually a beautiful white line above the the crack that's a reflection and so you have all these things happening in a very distilled fashion and i think he just became really intrigued by by the interaction between the surface of glass and sort of the ephemeral qualities of light and this just set him off. And I think this work is, is like, as you said, foundational to an entire group of works, foundational to, so it wasn't just foundational to Larry Bell. It was foundational to so many others. And so that was also, so I wanted there to be moments in the show where you you would rethink the histories that you knew. Maybe you'd rethink your, you know, Larry Bell's. If you are a fan of Larry Bell's, perhaps you'd rethink that. But more importantly, what we imagine creativity to be like. And I think, we've been fed, all of us, whether you're in the art world or not, you know, that we have this kind of archetype of an artist whose creativity is fueled, you know, is somebody like Jackson Pollock would be a good example, and whose creativity we imagine being fueled by torment and by sort of these emotional epiphanies. And I thought it was just so interesting how many artists a kind of key turning point in their trajectory is some happenstance moment, really kind of a mundane moment that happens at Frame Mart in Burbank that they, though, you know, it takes a great artist, though, to see something in that cracked sheet of glass that is bigger than that and to explore it doggedly for 50-plus years. And I think I... So I, I hope that the show also just helps us really better understand the the many ways that people are creative and the many paths to creativity and to discovery that are much more often rooted in less glamorous and more mundane moments.
0: Nothing could be a greater rejoinder to 19th century ideas about capital R romantic production than Frame Mart in Burbank. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: Exactly, exactly. And there's so many rejoinders in the show. But that's a really, yes, that that's you you encounter that one really early on, because I did want there to be a historical anchor to the show and not just contemporary artists who, who are currently working in day jobs. I really wanted there to be a broader arc here. I mean, it could have gone, as you know, Tyler, with your background, this could have been a show that you know, if I had all the space in the world, you know, it could have gone much earlier than than where when I began sort of after World War II. There are so many examples of artists in based in the US, Winslow Homer, who works as there's so many examples that precede the ones in the show, but for me it did feel important to have a historical trajectory here.
0: Emma Amos and Richard Artschwager were both artists who took things they did that had nothing to do with the art world, and migrated those skills and their ways of making into art careers. What might their pathways, what one might even call their transitions, from one mode of making into another, reveal about how you could be an artist then, and then we'll talk in a minute about whether or not you can still be an artist that way.
2: (laughs) I think I question, I think about what well I won't jump ahead to your second part of your question but it's hard for me not to because I've been working in this space and thinking about day jobs for so many years now and I am constantly asking myself you know what is possible now the 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 New York Emma Emos You know, and and Richard Artschwager were both living in New York and working day jobs. In Emma Amos's case, weaving, working for an incredible textile designer, Dorothy Liebes, and Richard Artschwager was working as essentially a cabinet maker. And they're both in New York, overlapping in, you know, let's say the 60s, and they had. While they certainly face their own obstacles, and especially Emma Amos as, a, as an, a Black artist, as a female Black artist, you know, what jobs were even available to her were quite limited. What day jobs, let alone being an artist, were, were much more limited for her. But when I think about how much less expensive it was to live in New York and how you could you know, work for Dorothy Leibs as and, and make carpets by day and actually make art by night. You know, that's something that I wonder how how easy is that to do now with the cost of living and cost of rent. But but the pathways for Emma Amos are, I I really loved learning and digging in a little bit more deeply into her practice and also, because our attitudes towards weaving and have also shifted so much since that that time, she was she was I, I think it's kind of fabulous that she was able to really make a living working for this carpet company. And And Dorothy Leaves is about to get a terrific show, at I think, at the uh, Cooper Hewitt's very soon. Yeah. So she's going to get her own spotlight, but she also taught weaving classes and was able to make a decent amount, you know, decent living teaching weaving classes. But this was her just sort of a side thing. And then she was so good at, she was so accomplished as a weaver and developed those skills working for this carpet company that they became, that weaving became really integral to her painting practice. And I think that I just think of her as such a trailblazer and and how uh, ahead of her time she was because integrated the way she integrated weaving and painting, you don't see many artists in the 1980s and 70s painting on hand woven fabric. I mean it's it's she was combining languages in ways that 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 really were ahead of their time. And now you look at contemporary artists and Artists don't don't describe themselves as weavers or ceramicists as much anymore. Artists feel comfortable, you know, combining ceramics and weaving and painting, and these are not disparate necessarily disparate spheres. And so I, I think there's something really. I also wanted to kind of include her in the show, also as a forerunner to the way so many to to the way art is being made today. And so I th- I felt like she had a significant a significant place in the show. And and it was an artist, you know, what's interesting is Richard Artschwager. I've known that work for, you know, every, every job I've ever ha- held. I think Artschwager was in most of the museum collections where I've worked coming up in the world. But Emma Amos is somebody I only learned about in less than a decade ago when she was included in a a group show that was organized by the Brooklyn Museum of Art called Witness that was a really terrific show about art in the civil rights period. And and now she's getting so much more attention, deservedly so. But uh, she was also, it's really interesting to me how many of the artists in the exhibition I didn't even know existed, you know, a decade ago.
0: You foretold my uh, my next question, which is the careers of Amos and Art Schwager and a whole bunch of other artists in the show got me thinking about the path to being an artist today. The standard path is uh, you go get an undergrad degree, you go get an MFA degree, you hope to get drafted from an MFA show into a commercial gallery, and then hope something works out where you can pay down your $47,000 a year tuition to Yale, or your $56,000 plus fees tuition to the School of the Art Institute, or your $54,000 a year tuition to MICA, Has working on this show impacted how you think about how the American art industrial complex educational system works now?
2: It has. It has has impacted my thinking and particularly with some of the younger artists in the show. And I'm thinking specifically one of the last artists I added to the show and it's the first work in this show at the Blanton is a terrific artist who's born in Puerto Rico. His name is Manny Rodriguez Delgado, and he went to the art Institute of Chicago you know he was he was a star he went to art school in in Puerto Rico at, at a really terrific school and then he you know knew that probably it would be benefit. people said, you know, it'd be great if you moved to the states because that's where you can really make more of a career for yourself and so after getting one mFA, he went to the art institute and 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 he and then he worked as a crate builder right after graduating, and he incorporates crates into his work as these sort of poetic elements about precarity and about the fact that he has to like pack his own work and and that he's you know always moving from residency to residency, and they're they're just really they're really poetics works. But he he talks about in particular conversations with him about how much debt he's in for from the art institute specifically that program, because I don't think he, you know, received a full scholarship, as sometimes there are some select programs, you know, where I was at UT, the MFA students were largely paid for, which is amazing. But you know, as you just you cited all of those schools where the tuition is enormous. And, and if you are the kind of artist not making, you know, the most commercial work, he describes his practice as an experimental sculpture practice, that's not you know, you're not making a living from selling that work. He does not have a commercial gallery. Many of the artists in the show who are younger do not have gallery, rep- commercial gallery representation. And so he has been, what, in his case, what he has been doing to support himself is basically applying from one residency to the next. And so he's and he's benefited tremendously from those residencies. He's, you know, he was in one in Roswell, New Mexico, then he was in one in Galveston and those have been provided him with incredible opportunities and resources, but it, it feels like a very broken system to me. And, and also how many people, you know, let's just say you get your, let's just say you get your MFA and not everyone does that at the age of 22. You know, let's say you're in your late twenties or thirties and then, you know, in order, if you don't make the most commercial work, you're, you are either taking you know, he started out with the day job as a crate builder for about a year. And then he's had other kinds of day jobs, but, uh, you know, they, they took up a lot of time. So eventually he just tried to get into residencies, but that, that means you're moving every year to different cities, you know, for how many years? I mean, imagine if you had, you know, good thing, if you don't have children, what do you do with a partner if you have a partner i mean these are not easy these are really tough tough paths and so i i really i think i made this show in a spirit of wanting to be i mean i think there's something optimistic about the show and kind of uplifting about the show to just be open and have these acknowledge the very different the acknowledge the way that day jobs and people search, searching for, you know, being able to support themselves have actually sometimes had a really generative and wonderfully productive influ, influence on their work. And I wanted to celebrate that and, and share that. Um, so there's certainly something uplifting about the show. But then there's also something I think, very troubling about the show, too, that, you know, just thinking about, is it even possible? How does how how do we how how do creative artists and people survive right now with debt from an MFA program or you know and and the with the path that we've been told is the the one path and so i i really hope that the show it doesn't solve all of our problems but i hope it points to some of the failures of those paths and the need to be thinking about many different kinds of paths i hope it gives i hope that the The show also gives artists who see it, a lot of artists have have reached out to me, have seen the exhibition, and I'm hoping it also gives artists just more of a sense of, I don't know if permission's the right word, maybe you can help me with the word, but that they don't feel bound by that art industrial complex path that you described, which is, you know, MFA drafted into a commercial gallery. I'm hoping that the show shares with artists and and a broader frontier and and set of possibilities and that that's not the only path that a person has to follow but yeah that's that's one of the things I really hope that the that the show does and not just visual artists I mean I think that there's even though the show is focused on on painters and sculptors and and photographers i I think that you know day jobs are something that is much it's a phenomenon that is true for many creatives right it goes beyond the visual art. So I, I hope that this speaks to people directly who recognize themselves in the show.
0: Veronica Roberts, thanks
2: very much. Thank you, Tyler.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information.